0: to the second most consistent presence in our lives right now. Brain test with POSFO for most learning every Monday at 1 p.m. Needless to say, what's the first most consistent presence in our lives right now, whether we like it or not, it is this tiny virus that seems that it's here to stay as we're heading full speed to lockdown number two. So cherish your last days of freedom, always with safety. Last week, we flew to Berlin to learn what makes us blink, jerk, and shrug by one of the world experts in ticks, Dr. Christoph Ganos. It is really fascinating to hear the complexity underlying such a seemingly simple phenomenon as a tick. This week, we land back to London to meet an unstoppable clinical academic force. He studied medicine at the University of Oxford, graduating with distinction something that honestly makes me feel exhausted even thinking about it. A member of the Royal College of Physicians, he quickly found the right path in life and joined the Psychiatry League. An NIHR funded clinical researcher, he has been working at the Maudsley Hospital predominantly specializing in the care of patients with psychotic disorders. In fact, he's so good that in 2019, the British Association for Psychopharmacology had no choice but to give him the award, for outstanding research in clinical psychopharmacology. What brings him with us today, though, is his commitment to improving the management of comorbidities in people with serious mental illness. Braincast, people, this is Dr. Toby Pillinger. Hello, everyone. Toby, Thank you very much, thanks for having me. So, Toby, let's get straight to the point. It is a sad, though well-established fact that people with serious mental illness die earlier than the general population. So, give me the numbers. Yeah, so
1: the figure that's generally accepted um, is that people with serious mental illness die about 15 years earlier than members of the general population. Um, and of course, a proportion of that excess mortality is secondary to suicide, death by misadventure, but actually the majority of the deaths are secondary to physical health conditions and if for example, if you look at individuals with schizophrenia, about 60 percent of that excess mortality is, is secondary to physical health conditions and predominantly cardiovascular disease, so heart attack and stroke. Uh, there are various reasons why um, individuals with serious mental illness present with excess physical health conditions. I can go into that in a little bit more detail
0: if you like. Yes, of course. Well, to be honest, Toby, of me? would agree with you would say, of Daniel Smith. Well, in 2013, Daniel looked into people with schizophrenia from 314 primary care practices up in Scotland. Yes, he did find that they have a wide range of multiple comorbidities, but were less likely to have a primary record of cardiovascular disease, suggesting systematic under-recognition and under-treatment of cardiovascular disease of people with schizophrenia within primary care, which to be honest, might contribute to the substantial cardiovascular-related morbidity. So, are our patients not taken seriously? So, with those sort of cross-sectional studies, it's you can only
1: speculate as to, as to the reasons why you know um, as the reasons underlying the results. But um, if we are allowed to speculate, um, I think you know I've read that paper, and I would agree with the authors that that the, the, the data likely reflects reduced screening of people with serious mental illness or in this case of schizophrenia um, for cardiovascular disease and related conditions. I'm not sure whether that necessarily relates to to GPs not taking these individuals seriously. Um, We know that individuals with serious mental illness present to their GP and to physical health services less um, and when they do present, they present later, so with more severe uh, illness, which is more difficult to treat. Why is that? Is, 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 is why, why is there a reticence to present is, is a difficult thing to, to, to work out. Why? But you know, there's obviously going to be illness related factors. So, for example, if I were very paranoid or had symptoms of, of schizophrenia or depression that made me less able to do stuff and simply in terms of mm-hmm. motivation, you know, inevitably that's going to have a knock on effect on my engagement with physical health services. Um, But I mean, the burden of cardiovascular disease is more than just, you know, under recognition of it. You know, there are other factors, so lifestyle factors, higher rates of smoking, poor diet, reduced levels of exercise. The medications that we prescribe can have physical health, uh, you know, consequences, and hopefully we'll touch on that today. Um, You know, when people do present to services, you know, unfortunately, we know that those individuals might not get the same gold standard quality of care that a member of the general population. Uh, might receive. And then there's, this is more of a research question than anything, but there is also a suggestion that some people with serious mental illness might have something intrinsically um, going on beyond just uh, abnormality within the brain that might make them vulnerable to uh, certain physical health conditions like diabetes and schizophrenia.
0: You know, you know, back in 2014, so Claire Henderson wrote a really long paper. It was published in the Lancet Psychiatry. It was titled "Mental Health-Related Stigma in Healthcare and Mental Health Settings." At some point, it clearly states that people with mental illness and substance use disorders receive lower quality treatment for various physical illnesses, including cardiovascular disease, diabetes, you know, HIV, hepatitis, and cancer than. Do people without metal illness now? Couple that with health inequalities faced by ethnic minorities, and you have the recipe for a perfect storm. So, how do you think stigma affects health provision to our patients?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you should probably get Graham thornecroft onto the onto the, <laughs> the, yeah. the, the webinar actually, because he he's, he does speak very well, and I was lucky enough to share a, a, an office with him last year for about eight months uh, in my clinical job. I mean, I think. We've got to think about what stigma is, first of all. I mean, I think stigma reflects uh, problems with knowledge. So, sort of ignorance about certain things, attitudes, so the prejudice that comes, um, and behaviours and that sort of discrimination, I suppose. And I think if we go through those three things in order, I mean, in terms of knowledge, and I, speaking from personal experience, you know, when I, I did a good few years of general medicine, I did my membership exams in, back in 2014, and but when I made the transition to the Maudsley and started working here six years ago. My eyes really opened to the physical burden uh, that our patients uh, present with in terms of their physical comorbidity, and and I, none of it was taught to me when I was a medic. You know, you don't. Be, so the broader medical world doesn't really isn't aware of the of the issues that our patients present with. So there is that lack of uh, lack of knowledge. But then with prejudice and discrimination, you know, I think. We know that medical staff guided by negative stereotypes tend to systematically treat the physical illnesses of people with mental illnesses less thoroughly less effectively and I think we all as psychiatrists or people working in psychiatry we all have those sort of horror stories where one of our patients maybe is denied an investigation or a treatment uh, that they might be you know because of a diagnosis that's written on the piece of paper oh well that individual won't tolerate that investigation because they've got schizophrenia for example um and i think you know it's our responsibility when we see that to challenge it and advocate for for our patients
0: certainly i mean you know walk into any general hospital ward gastro surgical liver renal you name it randomly just choose one patient with any any unexplained blood result now go to the medication chart Okay, so there are ten different medications. I bet you the whole Greek debt that the first medication the team will attempt so is the psychiatric one. So our health professionals demonizing mental health treatments.
1: Uh, yeah, potentially. I mean, I think there is, again, coming back, back to that issue about knowledge, I think there is a lack of understanding or appreciation or, or awareness of of how effective some psychiatric treatments can be when appropriately used. I mean, for example, uh, if you look at studies that assess how effective uh, different treatments are across medicine and psychiatry and you you compare them against each other, what you can see is that some treatments like um, say stimulants for ADHD or or antipsychotics, indeed for schizophrenia are far more effective for treating those ADHD and schizophrenia than the majority of available physical health treatments that are out there and I think people don't recognize that um, generally speaking and also we know that and I think this is under recognized as well is that some of the psychiatric medications that we offer can actually have physical health benefits and I think we can touch on that yeah. later as well I also think that some people's negative views about psychiatric treatment are maybe influenced a little bit by seeing historical poor use of psychiatric medications and the and the permanent negative consequences of that. And you know, the immediate thing that springs to mind is you know high dose antipsychotics that were used you know yeah. 10, 20, 30 years ago, and all the horrible movement side effects that you know that people are just left with. Um, but I think you know. Relating to that stigma issue that we talked about before, again it's about recognizing uh, and advocating for you know for your patient and for the treatment they're having when if you think, if you feel that uh, an incorrect decision is is being made with regards to someone's treatment, so highlighting that these treatments can be really effective, side effects shouldn't be expected and if they do happen you manage them um, and and of course, and and this, this relates to anything, especially when people are busy crossing stuff off drug charts, it should the patient it should be involved, you know, it should be, they, they, it be a collaborative process and they should be involved in this whole decision-making uh,
0: process when it comes to prescribing or de-prescribing. To be fair Toby, you know, psychiatric medication, as all medication out there, are not entirely innocent. And The psychotics, for example, if you've alluded to that you know, at some point, have been widely criticized about the effects they can have on one's metabolic functions and consequently overall health. In fact, you've recently published a systematic review and network meta-analysis comparing the metabolic effects, the impacts of 18 different antipsychotics in Lancet psychiatry. So not all antipsychotics are the same, right?
1: No, I mean, the the, the take-home message was not very surprising, actually. I mean, if anyone's done any work in psychiatry, they'll know there are some antipsychotics that are associated with really nasty metabolic side effects and predominantly weight gain and everything that goes on hand in hand with that. So diabetes, raised cholesterol, raised triglycerides, etc. You know, and those drugs are the drugs that are, you know, alansapine and clozapine, basically anything ending with pain is pretty, pretty bad. And that's exactly what our, 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 our network meta-analysis showed, you know, surprise, surprise. But yeah, you know, these are big numbers, you know, so these sort of medications after six weeks on average, you know, people are putting on three kilos, their BMI is going up by one kilogram per meter squared. Your triglycerides, just, just, to, just to pick that one out as, as a nice example, if you take clozapine for six weeks, you're, on average, your triglycerides are going up by one millimol per litre. Now, what does that mean? The upper limit of normal for triglycerides is two, so you're adding another one onto the top of that. And we know that from various studies that have done previously we know for every one millimole per litre increase in triglyceride depending on whether you're male or female your cardiovascular risk goes up by 30 to 70 percent so these are huge changes so so that was sort of expected in some ways but the magnitudes were quite eye-opening but actually what was interesting on the other side is that we did appreciate that some medications actually number one didn't seem to have too much Uh, effect on people's metabolic parameters, at least over a short time period. But actually, some of these medications started to outperform placebo. So, for example, just picking out some examples, a medication called Cariprazine, uh, which is like related to a medication called like Arapiprosol, but anyway, it reduces your LDL, your bad cholesterol. Another antipsychotic, Lurasidone, was associated with reductions in your glucose levels over six weeks compared with placebo. So it was very that was really unexpected, really interesting and so it sort of led to, to the, what we sort of concluded which was you know all things being equal you would want to be prescribing those medications preferentially compared yeah. with some of the ones that are you know associated with more severe metabolic side effects essentially and of course it's more complex than just thinking about metabolic side effects but, um, but you know as I said all things being equal you might consider prescribing those ones preferentially.
0: I mean, a slightly different view, you know, was shown by a Finnish group led by Prof. Jari in a study published, you know, back in 2009 in The Lancet, so in an 11-year follow-up of mortality in patients with schizophrenia, they showed that the, the long-term treatment with antipsychotic drugs was associated with lower mortality compared with no antipsychotics use, and even more interesting, so clozapine seems to be associated with a substantially lower mortality than any other antipsychotics. So where is the truth? Yeah, well, I mean, there's actually been an
1: updated version of that paper published uh, this year in World Psychiatry. Um, so it's looking at yeah, mortality rates over 20 years in uh, 60,000 individuals with schizophrenia. Wow. And, and these sort of epidemiological studies are so valuable. I mean, they're just incredible uh, areas of you know, information and i agree you know i'm i'm it's difficult to weigh up these two messages that i'm giving i'm saying you know okay so antipsychotics although well, they're bad you they can cause diabetes and and cardiovascular disease but actually hang on a minute yari tsehone is showing that actually you live longer if you take an antipsychotic because that's what he showed over 20 years he compared individuals with schizophrenia Who were prescribed an antipsychotic compared with individuals with schizophrenia who were not prescribed an antipsychotic and at any point over that 20-year period if you had an antipsychotic you live longer and your cardiovascular disease went down. Now the way that you can explain that is, well I'm going to try my best to explain that now. So we know that individuals with schizophrenia unfortunately uh, don't live as long as a member of the general population. If we give that individual an antipsychotic, their life expectancy increases. And we think that's for because there's a reduction in uh, suicide rates, reduction in death by misadventure, but also longer term, better engagement with physical health services. There is then, unfortunately, in some people, the metabolic consequences and the cardiovascular disease that comes with it of treatment. And so you, you've gained some years from, from that the benefits but you're losing some because of the cardiovascular risk. But overall you're getting a net increase in years so you're not losing as many as you gain. That's essentially sort of the understanding at the moment. And so the priority for us in psychiatry as we move forward is how do we maximize the gain, minimize the loss and maximize the net gain in years lived essentially. So maintaining the benefit of treatment but minimizing the side effects. It's all about keeping a balance at the end of the day
0: and then of course in the topic, it's the, the underlying pathophysiology of schizophrenia that may infer an additional risk. I mean in 2017 you published a paper in JAMA Psychiatry looking into whether schizophrenia itself it confers an increased risk of type 2 diabetes and most recently you published in Molecular Psychiatry asking the critical question is psychosis a multi-system disorder is it <laughs> um well i mean the so the
1: papers you're describing I, I it's i would i find very interesting so essentially just to to describe in a little bit more detail what we know is that right at the onset of individ, of, of people's uh, illness of, of schizophrenia before you've prescribed an antipsychotic before you have the burden of diet exercise etc these individuals present with are further down the line towards developing diabetes than members of the general population. So their glucose levels are increased, their insulin levels are increased, and interestingly, this is a this is something that actually Sir Henry Maudsley observed back in the 19th century. You know, in an age before uh, before antipsychotics, in an age before the diet of burgers and Mars bars, you know, he was noticing that there was greater risk of diabetes in people, he called it insanity within the less politically correct time, increased rates of diabetes in individuals and their families uh, of, in, of people with, with schizophrenia. And then it goes more broad than that. I mean, There's evidence right at the onset of psychotic illness, of so evidence of glucose dysregulation but problems with cholesterol, your uh, immune system seems to be there's the evidence of dysregulation and and some of your endocrine, so broader endocrine, so your stress uh, axis, so cortisol levels, and all those sort of things seem to be uh, elevated, well, dysregulated in some way. And what's really interesting is at the IOP, when I started working at the Institute of Psychiatry, you know, I, I started off doing brain research, you know, doing neuroimaging and stuff like that. And what's very interesting is that the, the magnitude of change that you see within the brain so changes in brain morphology, so size of the brain or some of the chemical changes that you see within the brain, the magnitude of those changes are actually very similar to the magnitudes of changes that you see outside the brain at the onset of psychotic illness, so the magnitude of glucose change, the magnitude of immune dysregulation. So that really does beg the question is you know is there is, is, there, is you know psychosis and broader, more serious mental illness more than just something to do with the head and is it something to do with the rest of the body? Ultimately, it comes down to just it comes down to words and semantics because essentially, what is a multi-system disorder? And actually, there was an ICD-11 steering committee meeting a few years ago, and they were trying to define what is a multi-system disorder, and they defined it as a condition where. Where Where you have no single organ system involved, you have multiple organ systems without any clear single organ system involvement now of course, by definition, psychosis is defined by the psychological phenomena that you see so and and the the other disorder the other things that you're seeing like the immune dysregulation, et cetera, are sort of side issues so according to icd it ain't an multi system disorder and and of course, this is a research question, so we don't know it are the are these physiological changes, a cause or effect, or are they actually just something that absolutely nothing to do with it? The honest answer is, we don't know. But I find it very interesting. It's something that we're continuing to look into, especially the sort of, is there evidence of cardiac dysfunction at the onset of psychosis? Is there evidence of pancreatic dysfunction at the onset of psychosis? This is stuff that we're looking for, looking into at the moment.
0: Okay, Toby, enough with molecules, because in the end of the day, these are just you know, a part of the picture, right? So last year, the Lancet Psychiatry Commission they published a blueprint for protecting physical health in people with mental illness. Now, one of the main takeaway points is that high-quality evidence has identified that smoking, excessive alcohol consumption, sleep disturbance, uh, physical inactivity, and dietary risks are increased for a broad range of diagnoses. It calls them modifiable factors because in theory these can be changed. So how can a mental health clinician help with modifying these factors and essentially reduce the risk for health related complications? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, first of all, I think it comes down to
1: a question of responsibility, you know, who, whose job is it to, to try and tackle this? I, when I worked um, at the Royal Brompton, so it's a, a predominantly respiratory and cardiac. Well, it is a heart and lung hospital, and I I did a you know a year of respiratory medicine there, and I saw an awful lot of people with diabetes uh, that were a consequence of high dose steroids given for their treatment resistant asthma. And there's the that the, you didn't see the respiratory doctors running around trying to sort out the diabetes. They didn't sort out the other risk factors that would come hand in hand with diabetes. Um, and I suppose the question is, is, should psychiatry be any different? You know, what is the, whose responsibility is it to manage these things? But I think things are different in psychiatry because you've got individuals who you're looking after who their ability to engage with services might be not as good as someone, as a member of the general population. Um, they might, by, by a consequence of having a serious mental illness, might impair their ability to weigh up the pros and cons of treatment. And so sometimes you're having to make decisions for that individual which has, you know, ultimately might have negative consequences. So I feel there is a responsibility for us to do something about it. What we do about it is is difficult because it requires a lot of work and investment and time and commitment. We're very lucky, or luckier than a lot of areas around the country and around the world at the Maudsley and, you know, at South London and Maudsley, the Trust in general, because, you know, we have incredible people working Within the service that are doing a lot of work to, to try and do exactly what you're talking about. So we've got Mary Yates, who head of smoking cessation. We've got Brendan Stubbs, physiotherapist, doing a lot of work looking at physical activity. Um, uh, Tony Rao, who's sort of really pushing sort of you know, alcohol and the, the, the damaging effects that alcohol can have. So I think ultimately, I think, and we Come on to the book that, we, that we've written in a moment, I think there is a responsibility for psychiatrists to be able to be aware of what is available in the area in terms of services and signposting and getting people engaged with those sort of services early, so smoking cessation, alcohol cessation, you know, substance misuse, dietetic, dietetic advice, some of the early intervention okay. services have physical activity programs, you know it's, it's, it's bit about facilitating um, access to those Thing. And Toby, since
0: you mentioned, you know, that book, actually this behemoth of a book, uh, you co-authored this along with the usual suspects, you know, David Taylor and Fiona Cochran, uh, and another 125 clinicians, the mostly practice guidelines for physical health conditions in psychiatry. So, tell me a bit about it.
1: So, I, I, to be honest, the, 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 the idea behind the book came about Four years ago, um, and it was when I was worried that I was starting to forget all of my medicine. So, I <laughs> it was really a, a, an exercise in trying to not forget stuff, but also with a recognition that a lot of people were starting to come to me asking for advice about physical health conditions uh, in people with serious mental illness, and I didn't always know the answer. Um, and because it's complex, especially when you start to throw into the mix psychiatric medications and engagement and all that sort of stuff. So so, I approached uh, Fiona and, and, and David and suggested that we come up with a book, essentially, the, the goal of which is just to improve the skill set of psychiatric practitioners with regards to identifying, investigating, and potentially even managing to a ba- basic level um, physical health conditions in people with serious mental illness. You can see it really as a sister volume to the Morsley Prescribing Guidelines. So, it's meant to complement that book. So, it's, there's not really much overlap, really. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and in order to do it, we got um, a whole load of different uh, specialists involved. So medics, surgeons, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, dietetics, of course, pharmacists, psychiatrists and essentially the, the book is designed to be bite sized It's meant to be accessible. It's meant to be easily sort of digestible, essentially, with lots of diagrams, tables, figures. And it's, it covers basically all of the main physical health complaints that you see in people with serious mental illness. So I think we cover about 130, 140 different conditions. Wow. There are 89 chapters, they're divided into organ systems, so cardiology, respiratory, as an emergency section Amazing. as well, but each chapter then, so within those sections you have the chapters, so in cardiology you'd have fast heart rate, slow heart rate, high blood pressure, low blood pressure, and then each sub-chapter is meant to be really short, so it's what is the complaint, What? How off, how likely is it in someone with serious mental illness and then what's the history you should be taking, what's the examination you should be doing, what investigation should you should be doing, when should you worry and if you are worried who should you call and if you do call then what information should you have when you at your
0: fingertips? <laughs> and if so that's say, Toby, you know, there was huge buzz and anticipation for this book but do you think that this reflects inadequate training of health professionals and that includes both doctors and nurses when dealing with physical comorbidities of our patients and taking it to an, another level as well? Similarly, are psychiatric hospitals well equipped to respond to any physical comorbidities of our patients? Well I, I made a joke at
1: a journal club or it was a grand round I think about a year ago when I was a panellist there that I thought that psychiatric training should be combined with general medical training or even you know primary care or you know, GP training and I got laughed at um, and yeah, uh, yeah it, was, it did not go down well. I, I mean I think <laughs> look the it's difficult because you, you, you know you have to balance being a good psychiatrist be able to also provide good uh, medical care. I think the, certainly in the training that I've done, there is probably scope for improved quality of training at a medical school, um, but also in foundation years of greater recognition of the physical comorbidities that occur in people with serious mental illness. I think nursing as well it could, it could benefit from enhanced physical health training right at the onset. I'm involved in a lot lot of that now which is sort of going back and trying to teach people after they've qualified but it would make sense to try and do that proactively I suppose. And so yeah, so I think there is room for improvement there. And then are are, uh, psychiatric um, environments an appropriate, uh, you know, are they a good place to manage physical comorbidity? I mean they're not great, they could be better um, I think and it, it, it's a bit of a postcode lottery as well, it depends where you are and you know we're really lucky at the morning, you've got King's over the road, you've got Consultant Connect so you can pick up a phone and speak to a consultant, uh, uh, you know, in general medical uh, capacity but there's still, you know, there are still gaps there and one thing that I've been thinking about recently is it might be we've got liaison psychiatry over at King's but why not have a liaison <laughs> Have a liaison physicians is doing the opposite in, 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 in uh, psychiatric hospitals so where well, you literally have a medic over there all the time uh, managing things but also reaching out into community teams as well it's something that I'm looking into at the moment.
0: I mean all sounds really good but you know back in 2015 schizophrenia bulletin published a Norwegian study by Steve Evenson suggesting that Employment rates for people with schizophrenia are between 5-10% to and even our own NICE guidelines suggest that people with severe mental illness are six to seven times more likely to be unemployed than the general population. Now, if you think that income support allowance is roughly around £60 a week, would you say that a healthy lifestyle is also hindered by society itself? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to
1: be healthy when you live on a shoestring Um, and, uh, you know, and yeah, when you start to engage in conversations about healthy eating and healthy, healthy living, with, with individuals who you're looking after in clinic and you know, when you find out that most people are eating chicken and chips every day, it, it, it's a difficult, you know, it's difficult to get into those conversations and, and I think it gets to sort of highlight that some of the disparities seen in serious mental illness when it comes to physical health go beyond simply what psychiatric services can provide and there are broader societal issues that we need to address that, you know, will take time unfortunately and lobbying. and. <laughs>
0: So, Toby, you know, we spent the last half an hour talking about you know, physical health and mental health, physical health, mental health, mental health, physical health, the eternal divide between the mind and the body, which I witness every day. You see, I work here in a King's Police hospital, a general hospital, that sits right opposite the monthly hospital, the psychiatric hospital. And for me, you know, that road between us, between those two, the denmark road represents that divide. And all that's wrong with it. We have indeed, you know, we moved far away from the, the sad stories of asylums, but psychiatric hospitals are still nevertheless separate from general hospitals. So, do you think your book is bringing those two just a bit closer? I would hope so. I mean, it's.
1: I think it is probably the largest collaboration to date of, of of various medical professionals that have come together from across different disciplines to try and support the physical health of, of individuals with serious mental illness. Um. So yeah, so fingers crossed it has. I mean, I think the idea of the book is to facilitate communication more than anything between patients and, and, and doctors, but also between different types of doctors, psychiatrists, medics, psychiatrists, surgeons, etc. And, you know, Never has there been a greater need in the current climate, you know, of, of uh, for us to try to communicate better, especially, you know, with the burden of COVID and having to look after these very ill people, potentially in a psychiatric setting, you know, never has there been a greater need. And and hopefully this book will facilitate that to a certain extent, and not only now but for, for years to come.
0: Breakfast people, this is Dr. Toby Pillinger. I'm pretty sure that thousands of psychiatrists will heal. A sigh of relief when they get your book on their hands, Toby. It does make the world a safer place for all patients. Next week, we go old school and welcome our dear friend, COVID, back in the studio, studio, the office. (laughs) This time, we will focus on the neuropsychiatric complications of COVID-19 with me, one of the masterminds behind the UK-wide study that attracted 2.8 million pounds in funding to study exactly this, the underlying biology of COVID-driving brain complications. Dr. Tim Nicholson, until then, POSPO and Braincast for most Learning, over and out.